All good? Okay. All right. Well, two weeks ago, I shared a message entitled Israel in Prophecy. And uh, we had a fair bit of feedback from that. And people were asking, can we go a little bit further? Can we know a little bit about the history? Because the media is using terminology like um, the occupation of Israel and uh, illegal settlements and so on. So is that what's happening? Has, has Israel taken land that doesn't belong to them illegally? And so we're going to look a little bit at the history uh, biblically and right the way through to the current time. But then also people have been asking the war that we're witnessing, this tragic war that's going on that um, um, everyone is grieved over because of what's happening in the Middle East. Is that something that the Bible speaks about? Okay, so I want to try to cover those two things as quickly as I can um, in the short time that we have. Now, um, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he told him to go to a land that he would show him. And then when he was there, um, you know that the Lot was living in the, the, the city of Sodom, or the, yeah, the, the, the place of Sodom, and that was overpowered by four kings. And Lot was taken captive along with the inhabitants of that city. So Abraham got his servants together, 318, and went after those kings to retrieve everything that was taken. And miraculously he did. He overcame four kings and their armies with his 318 servants. Now when he came back, he must have thought, well, there's bound to be some retaliation. But God came to him and said, fear not, because I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Or some people say your, your reward shall be exceedingly great. And so Abraham um, stood before the Lord and the Lord reminded him or repeated the promise that he'd already given to him that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So we're going to pick it up from there. And um, in Genesis chapter 15 verses 6 to 8, we believe, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So that's the first time actually we see those words believe and righteousness coming together in one verse and they provide the key of salvation. Abraham believed what God promised to him that through his seed, which was Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and righteousness was imputed to him. So then we read that the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And by the way, the land that God promised Abraham is much more than they are in today and much more than they've ever inherited. It goes from the river Nile all the way to the river Euphrates. Um, the most they've ever inherited was under the uh, leadership of uh, uh, King Solomon, just after David's reign. Um, so they haven't yet fully inherited the land that God promised to them. Now, Abraham said, well, how do I know that I will inherit it? Remember, he was just a family in this land at this stage. And so God told him to do something that we would find very strange today, but it wasn't strange in that culture. He said, I want you to take some animals, kill them, cut them in half, put one half in a line this way, another half in a line here, and make an avenue of blood. 
So it's like um, we're going to enter into a covenant. In fact, the terminology is to cut a covenant. That's the real meaning of the Hebrew word, to cut a covenant. God was going to enter into a blood covenant with Abraham. Usually in that situation, one person would stand at one end of the avenue, another person at the other end, and they would walk towards each other, making promises to each other in this covenant that they were making. As they did so, they would point to the dead animals and say, let my life be like these if I do not keep my promise to you. So what God was saying, and we read this in the book of Hebrews, is God was basically saying, may I, may I cease to be God if I don't fulfill all that I promised to you, which is that you would have this land to inherit. Okay. And so basically what he was saying to Abraham is you get the contract ready and I'll come and sign it. So Abraham did what he was told to do and he stood at the end of the avenue of blood, waited and waited and waited, God didn't show, and a deep sleep came upon Abraham. And then God came and walked through that avenue of blood. He was the one that made the promises. So it's what we call an unconditional promise. It was not made in the strength of Abraham's behavior or the behavior of his descendants. It was made on the, the strength of the promise of God. Okay, now the next chapter, the years are rolling on and there is no child. And so Abraham and, and Sarah kind of move in unbelief and uh, Abraham is encouraged to go into Hagar, the household servant. And she becomes pregnant. And when she becomes pregnant, she becomes haughty, very proud, because in, in that culture, it was um, a shameful thing not to conceive, to be barren. And so she lifted herself up against Sarah. And Sarah complained to Abraham. And Abraham said, well, you deal with it. And she did deal with it very harshly. And so um, Hagar ran away, pregnant, sat down by a well, brokenhearted, didn't know what to do, where she was going to go. And God came to her. The angel of the Lord came to her. Now, this is the first time we read of this kind of thing in the Bible. We call it a theophany, where the invisible God makes himself visible in some way, either appearing as an angel or as a person. And this time he appeared as the angel of the Lord. It was the Lord himself that came to um, uh, Hagar and encouraged her and said, go back to Abraham, go back to Sarah and the child that you're pregnant with, I will bless him and he will become a great nation. He will go a multitude of people. And so she was encouraged. So she went back and was restored into the household. And then the next chapter, uh, the years are rolling on again. And, and it looks like it's going to be impossible for God to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham through Sarah. And so he comes and encourages um, uh, uh, Abraham again and renews the promise. And he says this time that also not only will he have a child through Sarah, but also the land that he's already promised to him by a blood covenant will be his for an everlasting possession. Okay, notice that. An everlasting possession. God gave it to Abraham as an everlasting possession. Abraham is still full of unbelief. He says, but why can't Ishmael be the one? I've got a son. Why can't you bless him and make him the chosen son? And God says, no, he is going to be blessed. I'm going to make him a great nation. 
a multitude of people. In fact, 12 princes are going to come from him, just like there were 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel. He will have 12 princes and he will uh, you know, be, be a multitude of people. And, and so that was what he said. Now, moving on again to chapter 21, Isaac is now born, the promised child is born. Ishmael is in the home. And on the day that Isaac was weaned from Sarah, Ishmael bullied him. And Sarah saw this and went to Abraham and said, it's time for them to go because he will not be heir with my son. And so that's what happened. They were sent out of the home. And it, again, it was a very distressing time for Hagar and her son. They went out into the wilderness. It looked like they were going to die because there was no water. And so she put him under a bush, waiting for him to die, moved away. She didn't want to see him die and cried out to the Lord. And the Lord came to her and said, I've actually heard the voice of, hey, of, of Ishmael. So the Lord responded to Ishmael's cry and again promised her that she would be blessed, uh, the son would be blessed, he would become a great nation. So three times God made promises concerning Ishmael and the people that would come from him, which were the Arab people. But there were two things that were missing. Number one, they were not the chosen people. They were not the race through which the Messiah would come. And number two, the land was not promised to them but to Isaac and to Jacob and to the people of Israel later on. So those things are very clear. Now, um, as we move on in the history of, of, uh, of Israel, we see a couple of things that we've got to note at this stage. First of all, the land was promised to Abraham and to his seed 4,000 years ago. All right, 4,000 years ago. People want to know about the history. God gave it to Abraham and his seed as an everlasting possession 4,000 years ago. After about three generations in the time of Joseph, that family moved down to Egypt where eventually they became slaves for 400 years. But God miraculously brought them out when they were no more than a family. They were now a nation and they came to the land that God promised to Abraham and they became a nation in their own land around about 1500 BC. So about 3,500 years ago, the nation of Israel came to live and to dwell in the land that God promised to Abraham. Okay. Fast forward again to the time of David. And uh, that's about 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Christ. And David takes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and has been the capital ever since of Jerusalem, uh, uh, of Israel. Okay. So um, during this time, especially in the Old Testament, we know that Israel was under the authority of other nations. For example, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. And then we come to the New Testament, they're under the control of the Romans. Now, people are talking about occupation. You've got to remember, this was Israel's land. These were the nations that were occupying it. Okay, so we come to the New Testament time and uh, we come to the time of the Romans. The Romans were occupying the nation that belonged to Israel. And we're just going to quickly cover this period of time from AD 70 to 324. Um, during this Roman occupation, there was a Jewish revolt, AD 66 to uh, 74. And on AD 70, the Romans had enough. They marched on Israel, on, on Jerusalem especially, with 80,000 people and 
destroyed the city and the temple and almost one million Jews were killed in that slaughter. The prophecy that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, 15 to 22 was fulfilled. What he said is when you see this happening, when you see Jerusalem about to be desecrated, um, then flee to the hills, which they did. The Christian Jews all got out when they saw this happening and went to Petra and not one Christian Jew perished because of the words that Jesus, the warning that Jesus gave. Okay, then there was another revolt, 132 to 135. The Jewish regrouped and, and re, uh, revolted again, and they were defeated this time by the Emperor Hadrian, who hated them and was fed up with what the Jews were continuously doing, revolting against Roman occupation. They, they banished them from the city of Jerusalem, raised the city to the ground, and rebuilt it under the name of Aelia Capitolina, gave it a new name. And they set up pagan shrines and especially a statue to the Roman god Jupiter. So they desecrated the whole area. Then in AD 165, Israel was actually renamed Syria, Palestina. That's where the name Palestine comes from. They did it to smite Israel, to try to, um, you know, wipe out every remembrance that it belonged to them. It was their land and their city. And especially because they chose this name because uh, the Philistines were the old enemies of ancient Israel. So they did that just to rub it in and to, to smite them even more. Okay, moving on. Uh, after the Romans came the Byzantines, or some say Byzantine, whichever way you say that. They occupied the, the land from AD 3324 to 638. Now the Byzantines were uh, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire. Okay, so the Roman Empire, the Western side, it was divided into two parts. The Western part, where, where Rome was, imploded. And, and declined very quickly. But the eastern side became strong with this capital in Constantinople and they controlled the land. So it was under Christian occupation now during this period of 300 years. Uh, the Persians captured Jerusalem briefly from, uh, in AD 614 and then the Byzantines uh, recaptured Jerusalem. But by 638, their dominance was over. And the first Muslim occupation occurred between AD 638 to 1099. So occupied, uh, Israel was occupied again by another people and Jerusalem ruled by different Muslim dynasties. Okay, we don't go into all the history of that. In AD 691, the Dome of the Rock was built on the site destroyed, uh, of the destroyed Jewish temples. Okay, so um, you see the big Golden Dome, when you see a map of Jerusalem, that's when it was built by the Muslims in their first occupation of the land. Then came the Crusader period, which was just a big, uh, huge, you know, fallacy and mistake. And they thought that they were conquering the land for, for, for Christ and for the gospel and for Christians. And um, the Crusaders captured Jerusalem. Muslims were killed and Jews were burned alive in their synagogue. So they, they did no good to the Jewish people. They thought they were capturing it for the church. Remember the church was at its lowest point in the dark ages, uh, the middle ages of the church. And uh, it, you know, they were just completely off course. 
In AD 1187, Saladin captured Jerusalem from the Crusaders. There were various Crusades that followed during this brief period, all less successful than the first. Okay, then came the Mamluks. The Mamluks occupied the land from 1250 to 1516. Now, um, the Mamluks were basically slave warriors um, from Central Asia. They were not Arabs, they were from Central Asia and uh, they were captured by the, the Turks. They, they were trained to be warriors for them. Eventually they overthrew their masters and built their own dynasty and rule and they occupied the land during that time. During that time they taxed the Jews with high taxes and uh, put rules and limitations in place. In fact, uh, all this time, by the way, there was a Jewish presence in the land. Okay? Please understand that there was a Jewish presence in the land. Sometimes they were in the majority, but sometimes they were in the minority. But there was always a Jewish presence in the land. So the Jews were forced to wear yellow turbans to mark them out as uh, inferior. The Christians that were in the land were forced to wear blue turbans. And so there was a, like a class system. And that was during the Mamluks. And during that period of government, drought prevailed and there was a terrible famine in the, in the country. The population rapidly declined. What was once a beautiful land went downhill fast and become very desolate, a wasteland. Okay, then we come to the Ottomans, the Ottoman occupation. The Ottomans were Turks, again, not Arabs, they were Turks. And they ruled from 1517 to 1917. Um, they captured Jerusalem in, in 1517. During this period, Napoleon arrived in the Middle East intending to conquer Palestine and give the Jews back their native land. He did begin to conquer. He conquered uh, Jaffa, uh, all of Gaza and, and one or two other cities, but he failed to complete the job and uh, he went back home and never returned again. Now around this time, 1868 and also 1874 to 80, Britain had a Jewish prime minister called Benjamin Disraeli who longed for a Jewish homeland. Okay, so this thing started to be voiced, that the Jews should have their homeland because uh, anti-Semitism was continuously increasing and it was felt that the only way that they would be safe would be to be in their own land. A man by the name of Theodor Herzl, who was an Austrian, 1860 to 1904, founded Zionism. Zionism is just the very cause of the Jews must be given a place in their own country where they can live safely and, and, and not be subjected to persecution. Uh, so Zionism, unfortunately, has been turned into a dirty word today, but is basically just the cause of the Jews going back to their homeland and being given a place there. In the late 1880s, the land was sparsely populated with Muslims, Jews, and a few Christians. Muslims were in the majority, although in Jerusalem, the Jews were in the majority. Okay, but that was the situation, sparsely populated. And then Aliyah commenced in 1881, which was, uh, the, you know, the, because this movement of Zionism was we're beginning to gather pace, people were saying, yes, let's go back to our homeland. Remember, there was already Jews there, so let's go and join them. And this wasteland was quickly transformed by the Jews. 
they, um, they got to work on the land and, and it became very, very um, fertile, very productive. And when the Arabs saw this, they also came back, many, not came back, but they came to the land and uh, started working for the Jews they, they, because it was starting to be prosperous all of a sudden. Okay, then we come to the time of the British Mandate. 1917 to 1948, the British captured Jerusalem in World War I and one of the ministers in the government there, Lord Balfour, made a declaration, put a document forward of intent. It was not legal, it was a, a, a document of intent that um, uh, to establish in Palestine a homeland for the Jews. So this thing is now beginning to gather pace and become a real project. There's only an intent at this stage. But then in February 1920, the League of Nations, which was later to become the United Nations, okay, but the League of Nations at that time planned to assign three previous territories, large territories that were under the Ottoman control, because it was just one big land. Uh, and th those three territories uh, were Mesopotamia, which became Iraq, Okay, well, that wasn't a nation before, it became the nation of Iraq, Syria, and Palestine. And uh, these were all given to the Arabs and to carry out their intention within Palestine that the Jews should have also their own state within the land. The Palestine was a big land. It was uh, from, from um, uh, the Mediterranean, way across the Jordan, spreading out far. So the Jews would be given a state within Palestine as their own land. Incidentally, um, the land that was to be given to the Jews was the old biblical land. If you've got a map of where the 12 tribes settled, nine and a half settled between um, the Mediterranean Sea to the River Jordan, and two and a half tribes settled on the other side, okay? So that was the land that was gonna be given to Israel, uh, you know, under this agreement. Um, okay, so still, um, this is only an intent at this stage until April 1920 at the San Remo Conference, which was attended by Great Britain, France, Italy and Japan, and the United States were there as a neutral observer. They voted in favour of the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people providing nothing be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. So that's actually when it became legalized by the League of Nations, which became the United Nations. We often think of the start of uh, Israel's um, uh, official claim to the land as being in 1948, but actually this is when it, when it all began. It's quite interesting that in all the discussions today, nobody mentions the San Remo Conference. Anyway, when that was decided upon, immediately the Arabs began to revolt against that decision. There was a lot of upheaval, lots of uh, revolts, like the Jaffa result and so on. You can read all about these things. And so what happened was very, very sad and very tragic. The British uh, capitulated and uh, wrote this thing called the White Paper, which greatly reduced the number of Jews that could return to the land. It was just a pittance. Of, um, the, of a number that could return to the land. And this is why, while anti-Semitism was on the rise in Europe,
and it was getting more and more dangerous for Jews to live there and they wanted to escape, they wanted their own country and this paper blocked them from coming back, locked them in to Europe where we know six million perished in the Holocaust and the persecution. So that's a huge, huge blot on British history. The ones that were in the forefront of giving them back their own land then took it back and locked them in to perish in, in the Second World War. Okay, moving on then to the 29th of November, 1947. The Jewish state was born, officially. Although the territory promised to the Jews under the British mandate was greatly reduced. Okay, so they lost all the land that they were going to be given over the other side of the Jordan. They got that just between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, they were to live alongside the Palestinians in a two-state scenario. That was the agreement. And so this was put to the vote. They accepted, the Jews accepted it, and then the United Nations, there were 33 votes for it, 13 against, and 10 abstentions. So officially, that was agreed to. The Jews accepted it, the Arabs rejected it. Incidentally, there have been at least five two-state proposals that the Jews have accepted and the Palestinians or the Arabs have rejected, okay? So when Israel was declared its independence in May, on May the 14th, 1948, the Arab nations went to war against them. They said to the Arabs living inside the land, get out because we're going to blow Israel off the face of the earth. Get out now. So some of them got out. They were the Palestinians that went to Gaza and other places and some stayed in the land. Now it's interesting the Palestinians that stayed in the land, the, the Arabs that stayed in the land, they've got a very, very good lifestyle. They've got the same rights as the Israelites, the Jews. Uh, they've, some of them are in the military. Some of them are in government. Some of them are in the police force. And uh, they've got you know, nice homes, the same as the Jews. And, and they have fared very well. Whereas those in... Um, the area of Pal uh, sorry Gaza and and uh, the West Bank have not. Okay, um, in fact, it's interesting um, if you look at the state of the Palestinians today in Gaza, they should be living in the lap of luxury because they they've been given billions and billions and billions of dollars in funding, uh, but but the Hamas are not interested in developing the country and the area for the good of the people. Actually, Palestine should be the Riviera of the Middle East. It should be a, a, a holiday resort that many people would flock to with the money that was given to it. But instead of building up, Hamas are built down and they built an incredible complex of tunnel, 300 miles of tunnels uh, at, with all this money and of course brought a lot of weaponry and rockets that are constantly fired into Israel because their, their goal is not the betterment of the Palestinian people. Their goal is the obliteration of Israel, the nation of Israel. That's their goal. Now, um, 
Jerusalem then, at this time of the, the war of independence, Israel actually gained more territory, but they also lost some territory. Gaza was taken by the Egyptians. They controlled Gaza. And Jordan took the West Bank, the West Bank of Jordan. They came over, took land that wasn't there, occupied that, we call it, uh, including East Jerusalem. So what you see is, yes, there, these lands are occupied, but they're occupied not by the Israelis. They, they belong to Israel. They were given to Israel. They were promised by God. Uh, they, they, were, they were given by the United Nations. And now they're occupied by the Jordanians and also the Egyptians at that stage, okay? It's very important to, to see this. So there were 800 Jew, sorry, 800,000 Jews living in the land at this time. So let's just summarize. Palestine has never been a nation. It's not an ethnic group, but a region, as we've seen, that have been ruled by various powers over a 2000 year period. After 1815 years of foreign occupation and, and uh, uh, oppression and banishment by a succession of foreign powers, including the Romans, the Byzantines, the Persians, the Arabs, the Crusaders, the Mamluks, and the Ottoman Turks, the nation of Israel was reborn officially, nobody talks about this, at the San Remo con Conference in April 1920, paving the way for the proclamation of the State of Israel 28 years later. Now, what about the present war? We'll come over to the second part now. And I want to say this, the title of this message is Loving Israel Without Hating Palestine. We are not to hate people, even our enemies as Christians. We are not to hate anyone. Um, the Bible says, you know, love your enemies, do good to, to those that do evil to you, pray for them, and so on. Now that doesn't mean to say that we do not defend Israel's right to defend itself. And, and personally, I think they should finish the job, get rid of Hamas once and for all, because that would be better not only for them, but also for the Palestinians, uh, if they were ruled properly and, and for the good of, that, of the Palestinian people. Um, but we should love people. See, what's happening in the world today, you can see it, you can read it on the news. There's this incredible movement all across the world you are either on this side or you are on this side. Whereas God says, and we see it right from the beginning when he called Abraham concerning Isaac and concerning Ishmael, I love them both. I love them both. I, I want to do them both good, to bless them. The only difference is this nation called Israel is the chosen nation through which Messiah would come. And also to them, I've given the land as an everlasting possession. Now, if, if the world would understand that, not that the world listens to what God is saying anyway, there wouldn't be this divide. But I even though there is a divide, we love the Palestinian people. Don't ever hate anyone because God cannot work and doesn't work in an environment of hate, but he does miracles in an environment of love. Amen. He does miracles. And, um, you know, never write anyone off. And, and I think a great example of that is the Apostle Paul, who was the number one enemy of Christians, of the church and of Christ, killing Christians, hating Christ, wanting to stamp out Christianity. And yet God saved him. 
and he became a trophy of grace. I don't know about you, I've been watching a lot of stuff online and I've been hearing wonderful testimonies of how Palestinians, Arabs have come to the Lord and, and he has changed their lives. And, and the thing they say that won them was the love that was displayed to them through Christians when they expected hatred. And so don't be overcome with evil. Don't take sides in the sense that you love these but hate these. Love everyone. Stand up for what God says is true. Stand up for what is right. But love all, all people. Pray for them that God would move mightily in, in all people and bring them to himself. Okay, so now the, the next question that's asked is what about this present war that's going on? Does the Bible say anything about the current war between Israel and Hamas? And uh, sometimes people bring up Psalm 83. Okay, so we're going to quickly look at this. Um, Psalm 83 says, Do not be silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. Those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have uh, consulted together with the consent and they form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, the Moab and the Hagrites, Gabel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them and they have helped the children of Lot. Now, that is not what's going on today. There's no reference to what's going on today because none of those nations currently are at war with Israel. That was fulfilled probably during the War of Independence. Because for almost 2,000 years, Israel was not a nation. They were the Jewish race scattered around the world, a few, few of them living in the land. But they didn't become a nation until 1948. And then at that point, these are the nations. If you look at who they are, the, the, these are Lebanon, Syria, uh, Transjordan, which became Jordan, and Iraq and Egypt. They're the ones that came against Israel at that time, those nations, to cut them off from become, being a nation. They said, no, we will not accept this. And they went to war against them. And we know that they lost that war. So that's not the scripture that's referring to what happened today. The nation that is against Israel today is one nation. It's Iran. And Hamas and uh, Hezbollah are proxies for Iran, for that nation. Okay, so let's move on then to the next one, which I know that you know where we're going to look at. It's in Ezekiel chapter 38. It's incredible prophecies. Chapter 37 spoke about Israel coming out of the graves, the bones coming together to form a body, coming out of the graves where they were buried and uh, uh, returning to their land. Then chapter 38 we read some incredible things. Let's look at it. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog. Now, Gog is not a place, it's a ruler. That word means ruler or prince, it's a person. Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of, Now, many people believe that this is Russia because it's the far north country. There's no country more far north of Israel than Russia. Rosh is said to be Russia, Meshach, Moscow, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed. A great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, which is Iran. Okay, so the chief players so far are Russia and Persia, Iran, Ethiopia, which could also call, uh, include Sudan, and Libya are with them, all of them with shields and helmet. Goma and all its truth, the house of Togoma. Togoma, by the way, is Turkey. Okay, not an Arab country. Turkey uh, has been very vocal, very, very vocal against Israel and uh, wants action against them. From, from the far north. Okay, so these are all coming from the far north and all the troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your co companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land and those brought back from the sword, those that come back from all the different nations and gathered from the people on, on the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate and they were brought out of the nations. Now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all the troops, and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwarred villages. Now let me say this, unwarred villages, if you look at this passage, Israel believes it is now protected. No need to build walls to defend itself. Why? Because I believe that this is after the Antichrist has appeared and made the seven-year covenant promising peace to Israel. So they're feeling everything's good now. We're, we're safe. We're secure. If you want to read um, the corresponding passage in Revelation, is Revelation chapter 6 and the first four seals. The first one is the peace, the false peace that comes over the whole world. Everybody thinks we're all good now. We're all safe. And then, chap uh, sorry, the, the second, third and fourth seals are what we call the great tribulation. That is the, the time that Jesus promised that there's never been a time like this ever in the history of the world. You, you'll, you'll read as we read on what is going to happen. And in the book of Revelation, it says that one quarter of the earth with the population will perish. It will be a terrible, terrible time. Uh, and this is, this is the trigger of it all. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without wars and having neither bars or gates to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Just perfectly describing Israel. Sheba, that's Yemen today. Dedan, South Southern Arabia. Merchants of Tarshish, well, there are that many, uh, you know, uh, explanations of that word that we just leave that. It could be anything. But certainly Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lines will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? In other words, many nations will speak against this. 
saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's your objective? What's in this for you? What are you getting out of this? But they won't do anything. Okay, so there'll be a lot of speaking against you as you often see in these sort of times. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against it, against my people, uh, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that, now I want you to notice this term, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. You, you, you're going to see that, that that is a recurring phrase. Some people ask, is there going to be another revival before the second coming? I don't see a revival in the scriptures, but what I do see is that when this happens, this will be such a wake-up call for the whole world. The whole world will be shaken to its core. People will ask what's going on, and we have the answer. We can take them to these passages. In fact, people are asking that now. These are days of extraordinary opportunity to share the gospel. When people say, what on earth is going on? You say, I can help you there. Let me show you what's going on. And people will start to listen. They've got a, an incredible chance. I, I believe personally, and I hope with all my heart, that many people will be given a chance to turn to the Lord, to believe on him and be saved. That's what I'm praying for with all my heart. And I'm believing that this is what it's saying, that the nations will know that they can't just laugh at God anymore, that God is real. They've either got to accept him or they've got one more chance to reject him forever. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Notice that. There will be this incredible cosmic upheaval that's going to just send repercussions all around the world resulting in so many deaths. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down the steep places will fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstorms, fire and brimstone. Thus, look at this again, I will magnify, magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. God will reveal himself at this time. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Just very quickly now, next chapter. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. Second thing that's going to happen, a spiritual awakening of the nation of Israel. Their eyes will be opened to know that Jesus is their Messiah. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Keeps repeating this. The Holy One in Israel. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face 
from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. That's the spiritual awakening. Up until this point, the, 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 the corpse has been assembled. The bones have come together and a body has been formed, but there's been no breath in it. But now they come alive spiritually. Now, is this then the Battle of Armageddon, the, 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 the final war that ends it all? No, it's not. I don't believe so for two reasons. Number one, there's no mention of this vast army that's going to come from the other side of the Euphrates. 200 million people. Think about that. 200 million people. That includes like, okay, you've got countries like China, North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan. You, you look at the countries that are on the other side of the Euphrates. Okay, that's, that's the first reason. The second reason is this. This destruction will be as a result of cosmic upheaval that God will send. Great earthquake, hailstones coming from heaven and so on. And many people will be devastated. But it's not the second coming. The Lord himself has not come. Okay, so if we go quickly to the book of Revelation, we read about uh, this vast army. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice. By this time, by the way, the church has been raptured. Okay, this is now not... Um, the great tribulation. This is the day of God's wrath. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year were released to kill a third of mankind. Okay, so let's just say the population of the world is 8 billion. I think it's more than that now. A quarter have already been killed, okay, in the Great Tribulation. Now a third of the remaining, that's another 2 billion. So basically half the population of the world has been reduced. Now the number of the army and of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Okay, now if you know anything about the book of Revelation, uh, it's in two parts. The first part is given, and then it's the end. And then it's repeated again with more detail. That's the way God often uh, shares scripture. We see that in Genesis and, and other parts. So we go across quickly to Roman, uh, Revelation 16. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now there are reports that the Euphrates is drying up now. I don't know if you've seen that, but there are reports that you can Google it that the river Euphrates is starting to dry up. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. In other words, Christians, be awake. Know what's going on and walk in the light. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now you know that Armageddon, that's when this great army comes against Israel, just about finishes them, and then the Lord comes, the second coming, okay? So that's after the great tribulation. Okay, now we're just quickly going to finish up with two passages from Zechariah that speak of those two things. This passage is speaking about the great tribulation.
what could be what we're leading up to today. I'll, come, I'll finish up with that, whether we are or not, in just a moment. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays a foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Notice that. God's going to say to Israel, listen, everyone is going to come against you. Every nation is going to come against you. But I'm going to defend you. And to, to make them confident in that, he's saying, don't forget, I'm the one that laid the foundation of the earth. I'm the one that stretched out the heavens. I'm the one that created man and gave him his life. Okay, it's me that's saying this. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Can you see what that is? That's the great tribulation where people are going to come against that, that, that uh, um, Ezekiel 38, 39 prophecy. But during that time, there will be a spiritual awakening. Israel's eyes will be finally opened and see that Jesus is the Messiah and they will put their trust in him. Okay, so that battle we've already seen, it will end in the favor of Israel. God is going to deliver them. But two chapters later, and we finish with this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. That's the day of God's wrath, different to the day of the great tribulation. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. The Lord is coming now. The Lord will go forth, the second coming of Jesus. He will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Uh, half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord my God, sorry, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Some translations say with him. That's us. Okay, the, the rapture is coming for the church. The second coming, he's coming with the church. We come with him. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations will, which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. That's what we call the millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus finally is reigning on the earth, there'll be no more death, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more sorrow. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. We're getting close. Now, is, get back to the original question, 
is what's happening today in the Middle East. The war between Israel and Hamas, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Well, if Russia and Iran get directly involved, look up. Your redemption is drawing nigh. That's what I would say to you. The Bible has made it very clear who will come against them. Uh, we know that Hezbollah and Hamas are, as I say, uh, proxies for Iran. And we know that Iran and Russia are in league together, supplying weapons and so on for each other. If those two directly get involved, and it wouldn't be surprising, given the amount of world opinion that's building all over the world, all over the nations, they will feel that the world will back them. They will feel justified in coming down upon Israel and uh, in their eyes putting a stop to what they call war crimes. So that's all I would say. I'm not saying it is, I'm not saying it isn't, but if you see Russia and Iran getting involved, then we know this is it. And we're here for a purpose, friends. We're here not to live the best life we can. <laughs> We're here to be a light and a witness to Jesus. And I believe that this, what is happening, as tragic as it is, says to us two things. Don't hate anyone. Don't hate anyone. Even the enemies of Israel, don't hate them. Don't get caught up in what the world is doing, taking sides and hating one another. Love all people and pray, and God will give you many, many opportunities to share the gospel with people. It's going to be like the last chance. And I believe that many will come to the Lord in these closing days of time because God is full of mercy. God is full of grace. God is a God of salvation. And I personally believe that, there, that many will be brought in at the very last hour as a result of what is happening. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. You are the God of history. You are the God who began it all and Lord we know that you will bring it all to a climax when Jesus will come and put down all his enemies and bring war and suffering death and hatred sickness and disease to an end once and for all and we say come Lord Jesus come Lord Jesus we are ready the world needs you to come even now we pray, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege that you've given us of being alive on planet Earth at this time. And we pray that you will give us opportunities with our loved ones, our neighbours, those that you bring us into contact with, to share the good news of the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray for a great harvest of ingathering in these last days of time. We pray for your people, Israel. We pray for your protection upon them. We pray, Lord God, that you continue to give wisdom and grace there. We pray most of all that their eyes will be open, even as you said it would, to know that Jesus is their Messiah and their Saviour. We ask it all in his name. Everybody said? Amen. 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 Thank you for listening.